result of all this was the book that has just been published 13 years after the first time I heard Connie Converse's music. And it is my attempt, um, sometimes successful, sometimes not, to understand and uncover the life of the very secretive, mysterious, and ultra-talented genius Connie Converse. I mean, I think in a, a very meaningful sense, Van Morrison's time in Boston is really more kind of a jumping off point. Uh, what are those central threads that you really started pulling in order to bring this book together? Well, you know, it all started with Astral Weeks and the the magazine article about Van's time here leading up to recording it. And I was just shocked that there was, like like Howard, there was just almost nothing about this very important time period. And so when it came time to possibly expand it into a book, my editor said, well, maybe some other interesting things were happening in the city at that same time. And having grown up here my whole life in Boston, I was like, it can't be. It's so boring. <laughs> and within you know a few months, I had turned over all these rocks and I was like, there's a cult and there's this. <laughs> and so it's just like this kind of madhouse feeling of Boston 1968 emerged and... um yeah, I mean, that like, gee whiz, I'm discovering things feeling in the book is real, because I wrote it in the order you read it. And so, you know, the, 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 the reader is, is discovering with me. And um, that's another thing I loved about Howard's book as well. That journey, yeah, you know, that journey you take us on. Vashti, you're obviously a bit of an outlier, I think, in, in, as far as the actual approach and, and the subject matter in that you are, well, I suppose this is true to some extent of, of every book, but you are very much the, the main character of your own story. It's a memoir. Um, I, is there a sense in which there was a central mystery to be solved in your book as well, going back and revisiting this period of your life from several decades ago? Yes, in that I I started out ages ago trying to write this book and uh, making it, uh, trying to explain to my children <laughs> what their parents' early lives had been like, what the sixties had been like, how different they were to to their own their own experiences and. I suppose the more I wrote about it, the more I realized how incredibly different it all was. And yes, I am an outlier here and that my book is about me <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Ryan's and Howard's books are about someone else. And uh, so, yeah, my my book is kind of different. Again, I mean, there is a sense in which all of you are characters in, in your own stories. Um and it really is for for Howard and Ryan. It is really that that mystery that you're attempting to solve. So you you effectively in, inserted yourselves into the narrative. Was that a clear stylistic choice from effectively the beginning? Um, yeah. I mean that, that I have a tendency to do at least little asides about w what it was like getting the story. Usually, if I'm telling the story to someone in a bar or something, but. Um, again, my editor, Ed Park, uh, 
just found that stuff so compelling and actually like essential to the launching off point that he knew exactly how much we should include in there. So well, that's good. Yeah. I, I had a lot taken out. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, believe me, me too. Me too. I kind of, I think maybe, I don't know about you, Vashti, but I, I kind of lost my mind. I think Howard alluded to it earlier writing this book. And I was like, no, it needs to be like a Noah's Ark of information. We got to put everything in. And my editor uh-huh. was like, or it could be a good book. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, yours in particular, yeah. Ryan, obviously Vashti has, has a, you know, a clear chronological narrative. And, and I think to a certain extent, Howard does as well, but you were... I feel like the most difficult part of the process of writing your book was figuring out which direction to go in. I don't know about that. I think we set a bunch of rules once we realized all of the things we had to pick from. And uh, I don't know. I felt pretty mission-driven. It seems like a crazy quilt, but like I know, I know where I wanted to go by the end, the end, the last page, you know? Uh, Vashti, I'm curious. Did you know, like... It's your life. It's your memoir. Did you know how it ended when you wrote sentence one? Uh, no, not until about a week before I finished it. <laughs> no, See? I had no idea yeah. how to finish it. I, I, it was That was the hardest part, was knowing yeah. where to stop and how much, how much to take out, how much more to put in. But yes, the, the end part was really hard for me, you know. How much more do I need to say? Oh no, okay, that'll do. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite difficult to know. Did it surprise you? Did you kind of did did it? Did anything about the process surprise you, or did it unlock? Did you learn about yourself? As cheesy as that might sound, I don't think. No, I I have been asked that a few times. What did you learn by this process? What did you learn by remembering? Um, I don't think it has changed my opinion of myself, really. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But uh, I didn't really rediscover anything because it's all in there. It was all in there, just waiting, waiting to to be said. Whereas you, both of you, had to do so much research. I didn't have to do any. It was all in there. (laughs) So... That, well, that's that's an interesting point. I mean, it, yeah, it was this drawn entirely from your memory. Is there an extent to which you had to actually consult some of the people who were there? Uh, I only had to consult consult one person. Oh no, two. Uh, I, I sent the the first draft to a friend, uh, and she said no, it wasn't like that at all. And so I had to change that. Uh, and then that made me think, oh my goodness, what else have I remembered wrong? But actually, no, it was fine. And another person just didn't want me to say uh, uh, something about his dog. <laughs> so um, yeah, most of it, most of it was just pure memory. And I ha- nobody else has picked me up and said, no, it didn't happen like that. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a sense in which it almost doesn't matter, right? I mean, it's yeah, it's your story. Exactly. So you're telling it your exactly. way. Exactly. Um, my sister-in-law said that to me when I was worried about how people were going to see it, if they would believe it, whatever, and then about all the other people in the story. And she said, it's your memories. Just get it down there and don't worry about it. And so that's what I did. Howard, 
getting back again to this idea of of a detective story of the of the central mystery is there is there an extent to which the mystery that you were going after changed i mean what was it initially let's let's figure out exactly what happened to connie it was never let's figure out what happened to her in terms of her disappearance that was never the point of my book and i think um her disappearance unfortunately tends to overshadow the brilliance of her life and her music um, in ways that I hope will, will be mitigated now that the book is out and there's, there's, more, there's more of her life available. Before the book was out, most of what you knew is that she disappeared, most of what everybody knew, and now there's a lot more to know about her. Howard, one thing I thought the book did brilliantly, well, you know, I, I couldn't, like anybody, I couldn't be helped but be attracted to that mystery. Like, who vanishes and who would these incredible songs? But you brought her to life so thoroughly that by the end, that mystery meant so much less to me because you had given me an actual human and an actual life. And it was far bigger than that mystery. Yeah, it was, inc- it was incredible. Uh, you know, it was, it was never going to be a true crime book where I was going to try to track down this whole case, you know, um, it was about nothing else than the fact that I became completely overtaken by the the incredible um, talent of this woman and the genius of what she did and was unrecognized for in her life and the mission that I felt to draw attention to that and not the disappearance. How much do you think her disappearance figures... And when you listen to her songs for the first time, if you have been introduced to her uh, as this woman who disappeared in 1974, do you think that makes people listen differently to her songs? I think the disappearance. um, Yes, Uh, I I think that we can't help but think that this is somebody who had a hard time fitting in. And to the point where she eventually ejected herself completely from society. So we can't help but try to read some of that, I think, into the, the music. Um, but the, the disappearance was not even, um, I mean, it's the final thing that she did, but she had a lifetime of making radical moves and surprising and confusing the people that knew her in the decisions that she made. Um, dropping out of Mount Holyoke College after only two years, even though she had a full-ride scholarship, moving suddenly to New York, uh, and then 15 years later, leaving New York suddenly without telling anyone why and reinventing herself in Ann Arbor, Michigan as a radical activist. Obviously, in in that that writing process from earlier on, you're going on, in a lot of ways, effectively, nothing right i mean there's there's not there, there's nothing in the way of really contemporary reports obviously there there are some recordings w- was there ever a point in the process when it felt like you had run up against a wall or that it would be an impossible task to get an entire book out of the subject matter well uh, there were many times through the course of writing this book where the trail ran cold in terms of certain kinds of information and i i admit that in the book i mean i don't try to gloss over that and i in some ways um I say early on in the book, something like the Connie Converse story is like a, a puzzle for which no, there's no puzzle box cover to go by to know what the final thing looks like. You know, we only have the pieces. 
we don't know what the whole thing is. So the book, in a lot of ways, is is a presentation of the pieces, and it's and it's given to the reader to share with me. Like here they are. What do you think? You know, that's sort of there's sort of an implicit question I think in the book. Like, you know, I don't know what the whole puzzle looks like. Do you? Can you help me figure it out? Actually, in terms of source material. With- did you keep a diary at the time? Where, where, did you have your own contemporary reports to go off of? No, no, I didn't. <laughs> I had nothing, nothing at all, really. The songs, maybe, but no, I, I, I didn't write anything down. I have it all in, in the diary of my head, I guess. Um, and it, it was, it was quite easy in that way, and that I didn't have to keep checking things out. I didn't have anything to refer to apart from what I remembered. But, you know, my book is, what, 240 pages. Howard's is 500 and something. Ryan's <laughs> is a whole lot more than mine. Maybe maybe if I had asked more people, brought more people in, done more research, then maybe it would have been a bigger book. But it's just, it's just about me. So it's quite short. I'm going to say that's... That's pretty good for having a single source. <laughs> that, that, that being that being your your memory and your brain, I I, I I certainly wouldn't have been able to have written a a competent chronology of my life and at that point. I will say that had you done that, I even things that no one has any interest in lying about. You know, I just found again and again and again people who were in the room experiencing the same event with no reason to lie had different memories of it so and there was no accounting for it and no explaining it so Uh i think you know you made a wise choice of just like (laughs) here's here's my version of the story that was yes yeah how how was your how was your relationship with your editor um ryan talked a little bit about his what what was that relationship like tricky I had four. <laughs> sort of, yeah, one of them gave up on me entirely. The next one found it really, really hard. I think, I think because I was trying to speak in the language that I would have spoken when I was uh, a child, when I was a teenager, when I was growing up, when I was a musician, the, the words that I used, the editor tried to change it into more current kind of language. And I objected to that. Uh, I wanted it to be what I would have said at that time and how I would have described things at that time. And so it was. we had a, a difficult time at first, but it smoothed out. Um, there are a few things that I objected to strongly, a few things that they objected to strongly. But in the end, yeah, compromise, I guess. But mostly I think I won. And uh, I was quite, quite proud of that, that in the end, it came out as more or less as the voice I wanted it to be. Is there anything that got left on the cutting room floor that you regret in hindsight? Uh, Not really. No, I think there are things I regret not putting in. Um, But mostly, I think it was all there. Yeah. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have let them cut bits out. 
particularly. I would have cut them out myself, but I wouldn't have somebody else cut it out. I, I'm, you know, and, and that's the difference in writing songs or, or writing a book for publication that with my lyrics, nobody would ever question them or change them or edit them. But suddenly my words were being edited and that was a bit of a shock. <laughs> but I got over it. No no one from the outside would edit them, but obviously there's there's a tremendous amount of editing that needs to go into writing a song, right? Lyrically in terms of you just don't you know, you don't have two or three hundred pages to express these yeah, ideas. Yeah, I sure don't. My songs last about a minute and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that brings me to a question I had written down for all of us. I was wondering if your song songwriting has been informed by writing, you know, nonfiction or vice versa. Because I'll, I'll explain why I'm asking that. Because after I wrote the book, which was a narrative, I found, you know, lyrically, I had been much more abstract before that. And I had this confidence, like, I could tell a story. I can get A to Z. And the book gave me confidence to do that. And I and I thought that was so interesting for one medium to influence the other. And I was wondering if there was anything that you noticed, some kind of relationship between them. Howard, do you want to, Howard, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I have been writing songs since the completion of the book. And songwriting, um, for me, lyrics are, have always been quite difficult. The music is always pretty easy and the lyrics are always a struggle and go through many, 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 many drafts. But um, my partner, while during the writing of this book, um, a a wonderful artist by the name of Sarah K. Williams has encouraged me to write songs as if they were essays. Um, Because that's the other thing I was doing while writing this book is writing a lot of nonfiction essays. And she always said, why can't you you know, when I would talk about my struggles with lyric writing, she would say, just write it like you're writing an essay. Why does it, why, why is that hard? Because um, she would hear me talk about my struggles with songwriting and, and I don't have struggles with, with essay writing. Did you tell her because only you have a certain amount of syllables and <laughs> in the melody you've written? And <laughs> is this not a prog rock album? Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I like the idea very much. I don't know how to put it into practice yet. I haven't figured it out. Well, for me, I haven't written a song since I wrote the book. It, it just seems, uh, I don't know, maybe I've used up all my words. I don't know. But uh, but there were you did have songs, Vashti, that you, you know had biographical elements. That's a really good point. I mean, there there is a way in which just another Diamond Day is effectively telling the same story that this memoir is yes kind of yeah it is but it was that was all looking forward you know it was all a dream it was all a fantasy it was all ahead of me the the stories that i was writing in in just another diamond day and then the the next lot of songs i wrote which were 35 years later were kind of looking back a lot of them a bit autobiographical, I guess. But then when I came to writing the book, it was it was all so different, so different. And uh, I haven't gotten over it yet, <laughs> I think. To, to be able to get back to, to the way that I write songs, is they're so concise, they're, you know, I use maybe 10 words where somebody else would use 20. Um, 
and I couldn't do that for, for the book. Although, actually, I probably did. I think that's probably why it's so short. I, I, I don't dwell on things. Not gotten over writing the book. Not gotten. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh. It, I mean, it sounds like you're still you're still carrying it around, and or maybe that's having an impact on your perhaps inability to write songs. Well, carrying it around, uh, as in the real world, yeah, going to literary festivals and reading it out, and just having to carry a book with me rather than a guitar and all the other stuff for a live performance. Again, very different. Very different. And and yeah, I, I getting over it. Is it's so different to putting yourself out there, the the exposure, I guess, in a, of writing a memoir, and you can't get it back. Uh, so, yeah, it, it does take a while to get over that feeling that you've done it. I don't know how you feel, Howard, about having done it, and it's now been actually put out into the world, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's how it is. You're not going to be able to do. It any more editing or rewriting or rethinking it's out there yeah it's not like a song where you can go out in concert and you know change a lyric you don't like or change yeah. the arrangement yeah it's yeah. the book is done yeah. it's done yeah howard did, did you have do you have any um were there things you wanted to get in that you just couldn't quite nail down or are there you know do you have any immediate like oh i wish uh, or do you you're completely satisfied with what landed oh i don't i don't know that i'll ever be completely satisfied but i do think it's possible that there could be things that come out about connie converse now that the book is out that will yes. engender a revised edition which i would be thrilled by I would love to yeah. make new changes to it, update. Yeah, yeah. I would. I would be very surprised if that did not happen. Me too. I, I just. I just think it's going to. The the mere existence of the book is is opening attic doors, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Howard, you know, you, I think you bring up this point in the book as well that she would. How how old would she be? She would be ninety eight. Like Hundred and no ninety eight. Okay, so so. Uh, so a lot of those people just aren't, they're not around anymore. And, and again, it's so much of it is really firsthand experience and so much of the process of writing this book and figuring out that you had a, a book worth of material was finding and figuring out who to talk yes. to. That's, that's true. There was a lot of knocking on doors and a lot of cold calls and cold emails and um, uh, looking for needles and haystacks. <laughs> oh. The cold email is so much easier than the door often. knock or the phone call. I think. A lot of needles <laughs> and a lot of patients. That's true, but a lot of these people, because of their age, didn't use yes. it. You know, I remember so. when I had to reach out to Carmine uh, De no Wassel Denoya, the gangster who was in charge of Van briefly. He didn't have email. I called him, and he answered the phone, and he goes, Hello, City Morgue, and I knew I had the right guy. <laughs> and it was, it was the only interview I conducted where I brought a friend along. Because I was like, this guy's, he was in the mob. I don't know, he's an old man, but. I was just going to ask if the, if if that story is done as far as, as you're concerned. Well, I mean, things happen after the, you know, the recording that's the holy grail of the book was leaked 
online by Van himself. It's a, this very hilarious oh, Serpentine he story. Yes, because oh. he wanted to preserve the copyright. So we put it on sale for two days on UK iTunes. Wow. But the way the internet works, it leaked. And so suddenly everyone could hear this thing I was writing about. It was terrible. I, I take no joy in being like, I've, I'm the only one who's heard this. I really wanted people to hear it. But, you know, the way it came to me, I promised I would never do that. So suddenly and you know um it was a real it was a real thrill and then you know on the other half of the book the cult uh they tried to discredit me with penguin books and Whoa. there's been a lot of inf- a lot of things happening in that camp as well um so yeah the story continues i would how, be open how did they try to discredit you what do you what i mean can you talk well about- sure um you know, the book was thoroughly fact-checked. My editor and I did due diligence, but then there was a lawyer at Penguin Books, and her she her name was Karen. She was wonderful. She, and she oh, she started the meeting. She said, "Now, Ryan, a, a dead person is a libel lawyer's best friend. So if I ask you if someone's alive and you say no, I'm going to look happy. But I'm not a ghoul. It just means we can't get sued for libel." Right. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know the book was uh, the book was pretty airtight as far as factually and you know um and I tried to make a fair portrait of everyone in it. so but they they basically made a list of like 200 items I think the title was something like 200 lies and distortions Ryan Walsh told in Astro Weeks and sent it to the head, head of Penguin Books and I was on the book tour in California and my editor said you know hey don't freak out but here's this document and you don't need to respond to every point but look it over and i of course responded there <laughs> it was like i was like uh, you know um i was so mad uh, that they would do this but with the, when i got into the complaints i saw oh you know that there, there is still a cult mentality because mostly they were mad when i didn't talk about mel as if he was god <laughs> and so you know it was it was supposed to actually that one of the points that yes yes and for instance like there's a point late in the book where i place mel lyman in a dunkin donuts which is hilarious to me after 300 pages of him saying he's god he's got suddenly he's at a donkey's it's it's boston i mean it's boston it happens in parentheses i just wrote dunkin donuts exclamation mark and one of the complaints was has the author never been in a dunkin donuts why is he shocked about you know it's just like no sense of humor no you know yeah but I hope I, I hope and expect, Howard, that there's going to be um, a lot of people, perhaps, who also knew her or who knows? I mean, I'm just very excited mm-hmm. for you and, and her legacy. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you all answered it to some extent before, but in terms of actually getting to the point when you realize that this was going to be a book... How different was the end result from what you thought you were writing initially? For for me, very different, very very different. Um, I I had a, I had a, a picture, a visual picture of what I wanted it to look like, and how I wanted the drawings and the photographs to be printed like. And when it came to it, it was because it was made throughout lockdown. I didn't get to be actually with any of the designers or, you know, everything was done by email and I found that really difficult. But uh, I, I well, the, the book that I ended up with was not like the one that had been in my head when I started out. Uh, it wasn't that it was 
disappointment or anything like that. It was just very different. And I thought, well, because I'm such a control freak, I wanted to be in charge of everything. I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to, I wanted the layout to be quite different. And uh, somebody said, oh, well, the way you want to lay it out just looks like a Microsoft document. I said, uh, is that bad? <laughs> or the way you've got it laid out is how you'd write an email. Uh, is that bad? You know, it has to be the house style. And that, whoa, that, that, that didn't go down too well. Did all of you have some sort of idea of at least like a physical product? Yes, <laughs> I did. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I even went so far to mock up my own version of what the cover might look like, which I was told, like, thank you very much. Please go away. Back to the words. <laughs> you know, stay away. Because, oh, you know, really? they, um, oh. they're very protective, but, you know, because the cover is a marketing tool, essentially. Yeah. And so uh, yeah. I was very pleased with how it ended up eventually. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's a great, great cover. I had to fight for this. I, I had to fight for this. Yeah. Um, they um, they wanted her playing guitar on the cover because they said, "Well, how's anybody? Gonna, why is anybody going to buy this book about this musician if, if they don't? If they look at this picture of this woman smoking a cigarette?" Um, and I, I fought it, and I I said she's more than, more than a musician, and also I want this picture, not any picture, this picture, and they finally let me have it. Why did good, you? Can you good, tell good, me about good. why though? About why this picture? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this photograph, um, to me, uh, sums up a lot about Connie Converse because she's looking away from us. She's wrapped in her own world. It looks like she's in her own thoughts. And everything about the picture is so strange. Look at that lamp that's hanging sideways. <laughs> what is going yeah. on there? What is that yeah. thing on the couch? That. Like, what is that dress that she's wearing? It, it's just a, it's a series of very strange-looking images uh, combined together, and it just sort of encapsulates her life to me in a lot of ways as this very mysterious figure. Yeah. Yeah, now that you mention it, if it was that still frame of her on TV, you know, that wouldn't that wouldn't evoke the, the right feel, no, the vibe, the mystery. Absolutely yeah. not. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah, wow. something mysterious about this picture that makes yeah. you want to know more, and that's the feeling yeah. that I always got from her music. I want to know more. Yeah, yeah. And and if it had been just her with a guitar, <laughs> then that would people would think it's just about her as a musician, and, and that's from the back. so much about more. Oh, that's on the back. But if that had been yeah. on the front, then you know somebody picking it up for I mean, the that first time. That would have been a nice, nice cover too. But mm -hmm. to uh -huh. me, that would have been this is a music book. And it's, yeah, in my yeah, mind, it's right. more than a music. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well done for holding out for that. It's, it's really yeah. great. Nicely really good. done. It's a yeah. success yeah. story. I don't think, yeah, everybody would have, everybody can say that. Yeah. I think it speaks to your, I, I guess, a dearth of source material that, that Ryan can name a specific picture and we all know what he's talking about. I mean, there's not a lot of <laughs> yeah. photographic evidence of this woman. And, and I mean, even more to the point, the, the, um, was it Cronkite? It was Cronkite, right? The, yeah, the, she she did a, a television performance with, with Walter Cronkite, and that's also just lost the time as far as anyone knows. 
Well, thinking of covers, the first uh, design that I was presented with was flowers, mushrooms, rabbits, and more flowers and leaves and pretty stuff. <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> I should say, like having having spoke, spoken with you, that um, don't don't refer to her as a folk musician. She does not like that. Oh, let's talk about that. I, I okay. really want to. I want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, because people talk about Connie Converse as a folk musician too. So yeah, let's... Uh, yeah, I, I loved that bit in your book where you were going through the genres of music and you came to folk and what you said about it. I wish I could remember it because I, I only had a PDF and I couldn't copy it. I wanted to copy that whole bit out and print it and try to remember it because what you're saying about folk music is just what I feel about it and that and that the 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 word singer songwriter is just yeah, <laughs> and of, of, it's just so, I don't know, so lazy, I think, when there's so much more to it and there was so much more to her. Uh, and I loved what you wrote in that part of your book. Oh, thank you so much. Is that the part where you're like, you're talking about a folk song or a standard? Is It's a steak dinner. No, not a steak dinner. It's a, you know, you're describing the... Um, this isn't ringing a bell. Never mind. Hold on. You oh, keep talking. Oh, well, okay. you're talking about um, uh, the bit where I'm talking about standards and how it's like a yes, a, tur- yes. a turkey dinner or a Stanley turkey Hank. dinner. Thank you. Oh, I right. love that part. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, um, sorry. Go ahead, Rashti. No, I'd finished. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I I just wanted to tell you how how much I really liked that part that it it, it spoke to me. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, obviously, not a reading, but um, what, what's what's your what's your sort of pushback there as far as classifying her as a folk musician? Well, uh, first of all, the, the the pushback is twofold. One is that these genres um, are marketing tools and limit artists. And so let's just forget about them, please. Um, But then secondly, in in 1950, a folk song in 1950 meant a song that had no author and no composer. It was a song that was handed around and changed from person to person. It wasn't written down. It was passed around. Um, So Connie Converse was not, doing that. Connie Converse was writing songs. Yeah, she was a composer, yeah. She was a composer, that's right. And of course, uh, you know, everyone, they attempt to staple the new Bob Dylan (laughs) tag to literally everyone who picks up a guitar. But um, my favorite dismantling of genre that I've recently read, I was reading Lester Bang's review of Metal Machine Music by Lou Reed, and and there's a line in it where he goes, he goes, it's all just folk music. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and that's true i mean it's the biggest contain it's it's such a crazy meaningless in a hilarious way encompass it encompasses everything so how can it be helpful at all yeah and, and one of the one of the unexpected joys of this whole thing uh in terms of the the nice exposure and the attention that my book has gotten so far knock on wood is that Instead of calling people, instead of calling Connie Converse the new Bob Dylan, 
Um, People are realizing she was there before Bob Dylan. So Bob Dylan, the, the old Bob Dylan, Dylan. <laughs> yeah, the old Bob. <laughs> that the haunted pre, me. Yeah. In, sorry, Vashti, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the pre, the pre Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah prehistoric Bob. <laughs> but the, 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 the fact that she left New York the month he arrived really freaked me out. I, oh. I just the hair on the back of my neck stood up at that part. Um, right. Just the, um, just the the. The, the timing of that is just wild. Well, I, I, really, I, I really have the feeling, and maybe this is just my, I don't know, magical thinking, um, which I can engage in sometimes, but it feels to me like Connie Converse was, imp- imp- like she had these superpowers, which, were, which involved being invisible. Like she moved through her life almost as though people couldn't see her at all. And and the sad, the very sad thing is that uh, she had to disappear in order to be seen. I alluded to this at the top of the conversation, but a a big part of the reason why I think having Vashti on the show really ties things together um, is there is this thing that you and Connie share, having had both of your work rediscovered you know, decades after the fact, obviously, uh, Vashti, unlike you, Connie wasn't there to enjoy that success, but, but I, have always been fascinated about this idea of artists being ahead of their time. Um, is that an idea that you connected with at the moment, or is that something that you only really figure out on rediscovery? Yeah, I, I, I didn't know at the time. I didn't, I think, I don't know. I I don't like to compare myself with anybody, really. But uh, you know, the same thing happened to Nick Drake—that he wasn't seen in his own time. And like Connie, you know, we don't know where Connie is, but we know that Nick Drake isn't here anymore, and he can't appreciate or or, or be given the 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 love that he deserved back then. He he hasn't been here to take it, and. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if Connie Converse would have wanted it in the way that Nick Drake did want it. Uh, and I I just didn't think that I deserved it. So, you know, it didn't, I didn't think that it would ever happen for me. I should interject real quickly that Vashi can very much speak on the subject of Nick Drake. Is the, the two of you were commissioned to actually work together at one point. <laughs> well, yes. Joe Boyd had this crazy idea that uh, he would send me to Nick Drake's house. I'd only met him a couple of times and, and we'd never spoken. Um, that uh, we could write a song together. I had a, a, a tiny baby. Uh, Nick Drake was sitting at his piano with his back to me. Uh, every time I picked up my guitar, my baby cried. And <laughs> it's never going to work. And I have this wonderful image of Nick Drake's shoulders going higher and higher and higher. And I knew, okay, <laughs> this is, uh, no way is this ever going to work. And I don't know why Joe ever thought it would, because we were both very shy, very uncommunicative people. And so, of course, we were not going to be able to write together, for goodness sake. But I have this wonderful memory of him, and I'm glad I do have that. Vashti, there's a the, the leading up to the part in your book where you kind of go to the internet for the first time ever. And, you know, you learn some things. Um, 
in all those intervening years, did you ever daydream about the life of uh, your music might be experiencing, you know, outside of your perception? No, it never occurred to me. I had left it behind so completely. I had buried it completely. I didn't even sing to my kids. I, I had nothing to do with music for all of that time. And when I, and I, I really did think that it had disappeared. And it was Alta Vista. I don't know if you ever <laughs> were. Um, yeah, <laughs> before Google, it was Alta Vista. And I put my name in as soon as I got onto the internet. Apparently, people do that, but I certainly did. And then up came all these references to the music. And it was a real shock that, that it was still out there. Without the internet, I would never have known. And I would never have done anything more. So, yeah, it was quite a moment. Howard, uh, Vashti asked this question of Connie, but I, I got the sense that she really did want to be successful, that she really was uh, she, she really was seeking out that, that sort of recognition. Do you think she was? I, I don't know that it was recognition that was her goal, but I do think that she wanted to be able to support herself through her work, surely. I mean, she didn't want to be a starving artist. Um, so I think that, yes, she wanted to have some degree of success just so she could live. I don't think she was expecting, you know, to receive a ton of accolades and, and awards and whatnot, but, um, or to be a, a household name. But I think she wanted to be a professional artist for sure. Well, maybe she needed uh, acknowledgement from her peers, from the people that she felt were ignoring her or, or were or didn't see her, the people who did find her invisible, did she, do you think, really want to be recognized by her peers? Well, I think, I'm, I'm guessing you would agree that I, part of the recipe that we need to feel happy or okay as artists is acknowledgement of what we're doing, some degree of, some degree of recognition that people get what we're doing. And I'd, she didn't have that. She didn't have that. But then back then, how would you get it? You know, if, you, if the people around you didn't reckon what you were doing, there was no other way. If there was no radio play, there was no TV. If you didn't do live performances, well, that's what happened with Nick Drake, that he didn't, he wasn't seen. I mean, I wonder if there's another parallel here as well. You know, actually a big part of your story in those early days. You were you were effectively being pushed to be the next Marianne Faithful to to the extent that your first single was a was a Rolling Stone song, and you know you were you were less than thrilled about that, and and you know and and, and you wrote the B side, and I and I wonder. You know, I wonder if there's I wonder if there's a parallel there. I wonder if there's an extent to which Connie was going through something similar. Although, you know, perhaps she didn't really have that level of interest to drive her to really fundamentally change. Uh huh. Well, you know, Andrew Oldham says now that he wasn't trying to mold me in, <laughs> into another Marianne Faithful, that the, the the press got a hold of that story, and that was the only story there was about me that he had chosen me to be the next Marianne. But you know, once it had taken root, <laughs> that was it. I was that. That's what I was presented as, and it really, I hated it. I hated it. But how different to, to Connie Converse, who was not actually 
presented to anybody in any way that uh, until you came along Howard until you came actually it was it well, was David Garland who first first introduced me to Connie Converse that's right. and yes I, I'm grateful to him for that we all are for sure yeah the the a string of people went something like this uh, Phil Converse her brother preserved her music uh, digitally um, Jean Deitch who recorded her in the 50s brought one of her songs to his appearance on David Garland's show. David Garland played it on his show. And then a, a guy named Dan DeZula heard it while he was driving down the Jersey Turnpike, pulled his car over to the side of the road and wrote down the name Connie Converse, and then proceeded to uh, engineer the release of How Sad, How Lovely, which is her 1950s recordings. So, um, but... Just to, just to go back to the uh, what we were just talking about, th there was there was no one to, for Connie Converse to be the next fill in the blank. There was there was no one for her to model herself on because what she was doing um, it, it couldn't be marketed in any way that was that was known at that time. Gene, Gene's an interesting character. Uh, you know, I, I I had actually interviewed him a, a few times. He passed fairly recently, but. Uh, Incre incredible animator, like very, very pioneering, but he plays an interesting role in this story in that he is a, he is a champion of hers and, and he is recording her stuff and introducing her to friends. But, but he may have been one of the, the people there who was actually pushing her to change and that he wasn't really thrilled with her. He, singing wasn't. Voice. he, he told me he thought she was not a good singer, which is a sad, really? yeah, sad uh... to hear. It was sad to hear when he told me that because Clearly, you know, many of us feel otherwise. But yes, he felt that um, what he said to me was, oh, if, if only we could have gotten a real singer to do her songs. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. But but that's I mean that's you know I I I understand that viewpoint in somebody saying that from the, at the time that he was saying that and that and that there wasn't any reference for success outside of that. Well, there there wasn't yet um, you know Bob Dylan hadn't come along who showed that you could sing in an unvarnished voice that wasn't something you would hear that was pretty on the radio and it could be immensely popular. Howard, Gene is a, is someone in the book who eventually sort of pushes back on your inquiry. I was wondering, um, so obviously he didn't he didn't get to read the book. He passed away in twenty twenty. Were there were there other people who were just like dead end? Like I do not want to talk about this. Or how did you find most people like dying to talk about it? Had to be pried open a little bit, or you know. Most people said, you want to talk about who? Oh. They either didn't remember her or they said, I didn't know she played music. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, there were some people that were a little bit more prickly, uh, like Gene Deitch, um, who didn't want to be bothered or felt that they had already told their version of the story enough and didn't, didn't need to do it with me. Um, but I would say for the most part, the people that I was able to track down, once they understood who this woman was and what she was doing, wanted to help. They wanted to help get her story told. She went to, it was Ann Arbor, is that right? And, and she was actively, there, there was a point in her life where she, it's understandable that a lot of people in her life didn't know that she played music because she 
I don't know if she was necessarily keeping it a secret, but she wasn't exactly playing it. Well, to she, those she left her music behind when she left New York. She, she, as oh, I said, she right. totally reinvented herself in Ann Arbor as a political thinker and a radical activist and spent all of her time doing that. And the people in Ann Arbor, for the most part, I would say 98% of them had no idea she had had this other life in New York as a musician. Wow. Yeah. She kept it from them. But, but on the other hand, you, you also reference several people who, when you say the name, start reciting the lyrics back to you, you know, decades later, they still remembered them. Yes. Those are people from who heard her in the fifties who right. were in their late eighties when I talked to them right. and they said, Oh my God, Connie Converse. And they would start reciting lyrics for for songs they had no recordings of. Right. Unreal. They haven't oh. heard them since the 1950s. Like, how did, you know, how does this happen? How, how is that? Oh, how wow. More than somebody's memories for 60 years. But they did. That they must were. have been amazing for you. That must have been quite a moment for yeah, you. Yeah, that moment. Yeah. 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 Great. Were there people in her life who were surprised that she wasn't more successful? I know, as you said, her brother was a big champion and, and, and saved a lot of her stuff. But, um, Again, given that there wasn't really any context specifically for what she was doing, was anybody did anybody expect that she was going to go a lot further? I think the people that knew her in the 50s thought that when she got that television appearance with Walter Cronkite, that that was going to be it, that she was going to be the next big thing and that she was on her way. And so they were all quite surprised when that led to zilch, when it, it led nowhere. And she subsequently did an about face musically and started writing art songs after that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there was some expectation among the people that knew her then that she was going to be super big and then some real confusion that it, it didn't happen. Ryan, I, I want to turn your question on, on you um, as far as people who really didn't want to talk. I mean, obviously knowing what I know about this book, there were probably several. Yeah, um, certainly. Yeah, it would crop up in, in the weirdest ways. You know, even even somebody like the the kind of mastermind behind the Bosstown Sound, that MGM marketing campaign, Alan Lorber, he wanted, he just, his, his first reply to me mentioned legal action. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, you know, just totally needlessly so. I, I I truly think it was people were better off talking to me because when I talk to anybody, it humanizes them, and I want to treat everybody like a human, a full human. And so, um, but the big, I mean, Van himself kind of features as a ghostly presence in the whole book. And at first, I was so disappointed he wasn't apparently not going to talk to me. You know, we were on Twitter saying like I've talked to every living person who's worked on Astro Weeks at Van Morrison, you know, we just need to talk to you, you know. And uh everyone retweeting that as like a Hail Mary. Um but at a certain point I realized like, no, wait a second. Um this is this this is actually helpful to the narrative. Because he's not the same person who made that album. And the, his ghostly presence he I should not talk to him. I he would have yelled at me. It would have gone poorly. And so, you know, I think I, I, I have secondhand confirmation he's read it. But, you know, I will say about six months after the book came out, he had a new album out. He hates to do interviews, but when an album is out, he has to do a few. And he did one on, um, I think it was BBC. And 
you know, he's, it was a very strange thing. He said, I want to talk about fake news, fake news. I was like, wait, what's this? And he's like, journalists, they just say anything they want. They make stuff up. And I'm like, okay. And then instant pivot, he goes, and Astral Weeks. I wrote that when I was like 19. I didn't know I have to speak for it the rest of my life. Oh, you know, account wow. for it the rest of my life. And I, I, I felt, if anything, that was his review of the book, possibly. Yeah, you're right. He has changed. And that may, that may I don't know, has that sullied the book for you at all? Like what's happened in the last couple of years? Uh if you listeners don't know or anyone on the panel, Van has become sort of a anti-lockdown, vax skeptic, um, you know, really, really amping up his, his crankiness and and um, into a degree that I think hurts his legacy, which I find disappointing and needless, really. I think he thinks he's making a stand, but, but um, you know, no, I'd say I can put on Astral Weeks and just... It transcends. I mean, that was the that was what I loved most about the book was realizing it wasn't one cranky genius's vision. It was this team of people accidentally colliding together and just making something beautiful. And all these people deserved credit. And so I think of that, you know, menagerie of, of folks when I hear it. <laughs> menagerie, oh, lovely. <laughs> With just another Diamond Dave Ashley, that was. Collaboration actually might have been an issue for you ultimately, and that that gets back to that idea of people trying to put you into a box and trying to record that record as a folk record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'd been on the road, I didn't know who Fairport Convention or the Incredible String Band were. I didn't know anything about what, the music that Joe Boyd had put out or his which season productions I just didn't know and so when he brought in Robin Williamson from the Incredible String Band and then people from Fairport Convention for some of the songs not all I, I was kind of taken aback because that wasn't how I saw the songs whereas Robert Kirby who had uh, been who, who wrote a lot of the arrangements for Nick Drake's songs that was how I'd seen the album in my head was that it would be much more of a classical kind of feel than folky. Uh, and so again, I felt that I had been misrepresented, <laughs> not as a Marianne Faithful, uh, but as a, uh, a, as a hippie, um, as a, a folky hippie. And what I've said in the book is that it was like Joe Boyd's portrait of me, how he thought of me. And when he turned the portrait around for me to see it, I didn't recognize myself. And that was when I just said, okay, I'm done with this. I'm not going to do it again. And I didn't for 30 years, 35 years, actually. It's incredible, though, that that you, you end it with a total reclamation. I mean, you produced your last album, right? I did, yeah. Yeah, it's so beautiful how you you turn that story completely around. I just, it's really yeah. inspiring. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was great to be able to to see, uh, to have a music program visually like, like a recording studio with all the, all the levers and the buttons. And, the, uh, you know, when I was a, a kid, 
uh, in the 60s recording, I wasn't allowed anywhere near the desk, right. yeah. huge desk. <laughs> but to see it on a computer screen and be able to manipulate the sounds, that was just wonderful, wonderful pleasure. And yes, it was like reclaiming something for my young self. Yeah. On, on that note of production, Howard, the there was a record of, of piano songs that that you that you produced, and that that's a whole different way of telling somebody's story, and that's a way of really trying to to resurrect these things. It, was that was it a difficult process, and and were you worried about your ability to be faithful to what her initial intent was? Well, she left behind these very detailed. Um, composition uh, sheet music uh, manuscripts of these art songs that she never recorded herself except for one there's one song she recorded called vanity of vanities which the first time i heard it scared the daylights out of me because it's so creepy and weird and uncomfortable to listen to but also so beautiful so um when phil converses uh her her brother offered to send me the sheet music um i felt I had to do something with it. And I'm not a classical singer or a classical pianist. So um, I collaborated with the soprano Charlotte Mundy and the uh, pianist Christopher Goddard. And um, we made this album and we just tried to do it straight, you know, um, as she intended, as, uh, as per the instruction she gives on the manuscript pages. And um, yes, it's, it's a completely different catalog of music. It almost sounds like it's from a different composer altogether. You know, Vashi was speaking of of Nick Drake. Obviously, Nick Drake looms really large and has a huge mythology, and I assume a big part of that is this, for for a similar reason that Connie does, in that they're they're just they're not around anymore, and it's easier it's easy to project some of that that mystery. I know Ryan in your book something that's I it's been several years since I read it, but something that's always stuck with me, and that has actually come up in several interviews I've done subsequently are these stories about Van effectively like channeling the lyrics. I think he's like sta- staying on a porch something and like, you know, the muse is, is delivering them to them. Is there a danger or I suppose, is it, is it not your, any of your jobs, even Vashti's jobs as writers to, to romanticize, to, to sort of give in to the mythology of the subject matter? I, I think I really believe you can have it both ways in a, in a way because um you know like the book contains more about the album master weeks than you'll find collected anywhere else it really you know tries to get the nuts and bolts of of what happened but uh, it was one of my favorite reviews i think it was in new york in the new yorker that said it just doesn't it doesn't take away the mystery and so maybe that's just maybe that's just speaks to the power of how strong the music the art is but i feel like romanticized i don't know yeah i think i think there's trying to i'm trying to come with what i think of come to what i think of romanticizing things is that good or bad i don't know but i don't know it's just uh as long as you're honest i guess the mystery is there in the same way that it is with howard's book in that there's an absence at the center of the book in terms of the source material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was so... I mean, it's no surprise I just locked into Howard's book and just I, I just... I felt a real kinship, Howard. I knew what you were going through. 
you know, those, those feelings where you're like, am I crazy? Or, am I, you know, it was, it was really rewarding to read. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think as far as romanticizing goes, uh, I felt, well, part of the reason that I wrote my book was to defy the romanticizing that had been going on about my story that I felt that it had been, you know, had been made into almost like a fairy story and it sure wasn't. So I had to be really careful also because for people who really loved that album, Just Another Diamond Day, I, I didn't want to spoil it uh, and take away too much from it. But but yes, honesty, I, I just had to find a way to balance it, I suppose, not to upset too many people. <laughs> I probably upset a few, um, uh, but also to to make it true for my kids. I wanted to tell them the truth of it. So, we, and it wasn't terribly romantic. <laughs> I don't think. Although I think other people might have found it romantic. I, I think writing a, a horse through the English countryside it, 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 that's unavoidable. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was raining a lot of the time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> don't try to don't try to downplay it. No, no. It, I, I'm I am proud of it. I am really. <laughs> um, I, I think for me, uh, the the romanticizing was done before I wrote the book because all anybody knew about Connie Converse or the story that was passed around Connie Converse is. Oh, this poor misunderstood woman, this lonely woman in New York who made her recordings in a kitchen in Greenwich Village. And then one day she got tired of being rejected and she drove away and disappeared. That was the romantic version That's of the right. Connie Converse story. That's right. Um, yes. And it's not true. Uh, I mean, there are elements of it that are true. Yes, she made her recordings alone in her apartment. I've been in that apartment. I don't think it was in her kitchen. It's not possible. Um, I think uh, she had her own obstacles in her way. Um, it wasn't just rejection by the music industry. I think she, um, she struggled in, in ways that may, may have um, prevented her from achieving the sort of recognition that she uh, might have gotten. And then um, she did not just get tired of music and drive away and disappear. She had this whole other life of doing very important things. Um, that's yeah. And there's no straight line between I'm not doing music anymore and I'm going to disappear. Like there's a big thing in the middle there. And also all the things that, that contributed to who she was before she got to New York, which was pretty much unknown. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad you bring up that last bit. Cause I, I suspect that this is something that gets lost in the conversation broadly speaking about the book, obviously historically speaking about her is, is that work she, you know, at the academic journal that her work is like still being cited to this day? I, it's my belief that she will come to be recognized for what she was doing in the activist political world as, as in, in an important a way, significant a way as what she was doing in music. Because what she was doing in, in these other realms was just as radical and it just hasn't been recognized yet. I, I think... Connie Converse is going to be understood to be a major American figure, not just a major American musician. How short, how sweet to see that sunset at the end of the 
the street and the day gathered in to a single light and the shine.